0: Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Lord, we again pray for our sister Anne. Uh, We pray that the doctors are able to determine uh, what is wrong with her uh, and that uh, you will heal her body. We thank you that you know our bodies better than anybody else can because you created them. So Lord, we pray that you would bring restoration and healing to Anne's body. We thank you for your word That it gives us these words of peace and of healing for our everyday lives. That they are our anchor that we can cling to no matter what situation or circumstance we're going through. We thank you that your whole word, all of your word, is profitable and beneficial for everything that we need in our lives. How it reveals who you are, your holiness, your standards, your love, your sacrifice, your resurrection, and your life. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Getting together with old friends brings a new phenomenon into our lives. you probably experienced this more than once. It almost always brings up old memories of times now long gone, usually nostalgically bringing to mind good experiences from the past. The phenomenon is the realization that sometimes, especially after many years, that everyone in those friendships, while once experiencing the same things in life at the same time, are now in different places in life. And I graduated from from high school back in 2005. Some of you are thinking, 2005, that was last year, right? Well, those who would think, who's this old guy? I wasn't even born yet at that point. They probably already left to go down to be with Aunt Pat. A few years ago, there was some talk by my high school graduating class about putting together a high school reunion, our 10-year mark, back in 2015 that came and went and nothing happened. Part of the reason for that is probably partly to blame on the advent of social media because we all know what's going on in each other's lives anyways now without the need for a reunion. While a lot of high school friendships were strong at the time that we were in all in high school, I think most of us realize that we've all moved on and we're all different people and we were all in different places in our lives now. We've spent quite a bit of time with our brothers and sisters from ancient Thessalonica, haven't we? Quite a bit of time. Between the two letters that Paul has written to them, we've learned a great deal about what they were going through, what they thought about things, and how they were dealing with them. We've gotten to know them quite well. In fact, between the two letters, we've spent almost a year with them. Our first message on 1 Thessalonians was on July 30th last year. So we're coming up on our one year anniversary of spending time with the Thessalonian church. And t- today, as we end Paul's second letter to that church, we're moving on. We're going to be in a different place. Next week, we'll start Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, known to us as 1 Corinthians and most likely written around 55 to 56 AD. But today, as we close 2 Thessalonians, how does Paul end his letter to that church? And what does God want us to see and learn from it? So we're actually, our first point is going to be the conclusion. We're going to start at the very end and then work our way backwards to uh, verse 16. Let's start with the last two verses and then get into Paul's last prayer of blessing over the Thessalonian believers. So if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to 2 Thessalonians. We're in chapter 3. If you didn't, that's fine. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn there because I want us all to see this together. We're in the very last chapter of 2 Thessalonians. If you can't find 2 Thessalonians, Look it up in the table of contents. That's fine. There's no shame in that. It's in the New Testament, uh, chapter 3, and we're going to start with verses 17 through 18. And we read, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Now, at first glance, this could simply mean that Paul usually gives a personal greeting at the beginning and end of each of his letters. There's nothing special about that. That's what most ancient people would do with their letters. They would give a greeting at the beginning and at the end. But what else do we know, not only about Paul's personal life, but as one biblical scholar pointed out, about the situation that Paul was addressing in Thessalonica? If we remember from our study in Galatians... Paul's first recorded New Testament letter, what was there a good chance that Paul suffered from? There's a good chance that Paul suffered from a medical condition known as ophthalmia, which is an inflammation of the eyes that, if left untreated, continued to decline eyesight until it resulted in blindness. Paul didn't always have this condition, however. If we remember, one of the ways ophthalmia was brought on was through intense trauma, intense physical trauma. Now, where would intense physical trauma come come from in Paul's life? We read at the end of Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia that he wrote to them, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. He made a point of pointing out how big his letters were at the end of his letter to the churches in Galatia. This is good evidence that Paul's eyesight was already starting to diminish at the time of his writing of his letter to the Galatians. In fact, he had already referenced his physical ailment Earlier on in the letter, when he said, You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, in the first place. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus Himself. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your own eyes and given them to me. Most likely, Paul wouldn't have made that connection, that specific connection... If the physical ailment he was trying to jog the Galatians' minds to wasn't connected with his eyes. It makes perfect sense to understand this as the Galatians loving Paul so much when he was with them that metaphorically speaking, they would have taken their own eyes and given them to Paul to restore his eyesight if they physically could do that, if that was possible. So again, what triggered this ophthalmia? The event that Paul is describing here in Galatians 4 is also recorded for us in Acts 14. While Paul was in the Galatian town of Lystra, a riot broke out, and the crowd threw heavy stones at Paul so hard that they thought they had succeeded in killing him. I don't know about you, but I think that's more than enough physical trauma, especially to Paul's face and head and eyes, to induce ophthalmia. So even after this horrific experience, still in severe pain, Paul went back through Galatia still preaching the gospel and still strengthening his children in the faith. What a witness to the power of God. That ophthalmia apparently had not gotten better. And Paul's eyesight continued to diminish. So to authenticate his letter to the Galatians, even though he probably had a scribe write the rest of it while he dictated, he made a point at the writing of the end of it and pointed out to them the fact that he had to write such large letters because of his eyesight. So all that said, when we get to verse 17 in our passage this morning, in 2 Thessalonians 3, and we read, this is a distinguishing mark in every letter, this is the way I write, what is Paul most likely referencing? That at least here at the very end, he's writing these words in his own handwriting, and it's quite distinguishable because it's evidently written in large letters by someone whose eyesight continues to slowly diminish. So that's what he means when he says, uh, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter, this is the way I write. So why is it so important that Paul make any obvious reference to that fact? Why does he bring that point up? He doesn't do that in his letters to the Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, or even his first letter to the Thessalonians. So why is he doing it now at the end of his second letter to the Thessalonians? If you remember, which we've been referencing for quite a few weeks now, there was a portion of the Thessalonian church that had an inaccurate understanding of end times events, especially in light of their current intense persecution they were already dealing with they didn't think there was a point to holding down an earthly job in light of the apocalypse they thought they were already in and so they quit their jobs. Some were meddling in everyone else's business, which we talked about last week. And some had, be- had even uprooted their families from their neighborhoods, abandoned their church, and headed for the hills. They thought, what's the point of staying here and doing any of this anymore if we're in the middle of the apocalypse? We need to try to survive this. This had led to, at the very least, disunity in the church you could see that how easily that would happen in the church right how easily disunity in the church would happen and at the most complete upheaval in the church imagine a portion of you gathered here today all of a sudden just vanished because they just thought what's the point i'm going to go try to survive in the hills of harmony over here there would be some upheaval to the church wouldn't there be Paul had written his first letter to them, in part, in order to clear up their misunderstanding of the order of end times events and to clarify for them that they had nothing to worry about. Jesus would return for them and gather them up to himself before anything else in the last days of the world would happen, rescuing them from the horrific events of the apocalypse. Because of that, see, Paul was very practical, in what he said. He didn't just say that and say, okay, so don't worry about anything. Because of that, he tells them, go back to work. Go back to your jobs. You need to go back to your job and lead a peaceful, steadfast life, letting your life shine as an example of hard work and faith in God's sovereignty through the gospel, especially in the midst of their severe persecution. But what happened? What happened? Apparently, that explanation and warning in 1 Thessalonians and his first letter to the Thessalonians went unheeded. Nothing changed for this portion of the church. Now, why and how could that possibly have happened? I would think if the Apostle Paul, who had led me to faith in God through the death and resurrection of Jesus, had written a letter to my church, I'd listen to it. Wouldn't you? If you remember, we get a clue as to what happened in between the writing and public reading of Paul's first letter to them and what precipitated Paul writing his second letter to them. We read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Now, dear brothers and sisters, let us clarify some things about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and how we will be gathered to meet him. Don't be so easily shaken or alarmed by those who say that the day of the Lord has already begun. Don't believe them. Let's go back. Now, dear brothers and sisters, let us clarify some things about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and how we will be gathered to meet him. Don't be so easily shaken or alarmed by those who say that the day of the Lord, the tribulation, the apocalypse, has already begun. Don't believe them even if they claim to have had a spiritual vision, a revelation, or a letter supposedly from us. There were apparently some traveling preachers who passed through Thessalonica following the delivery of Paul's first letter to the church there. These traveling preachers reconfirmed this false understanding of end times events in the already sensitive and prone Thessalonian believers' minds. And what did they do then? They took Paul's letter, crumpled it up, and threw it in the trash. Not literally, or else we wouldn't have his first letter to them. These traveling, uh, uh, and so on top of that, apparently a letter was even received by the Thessalonian church following Paul's first letter that even claimed to be from Paul himself, but further pushed this false end times theology. So you can not only see the confusion for the Thessalonian church but the utmost importance that Paul verify the authenticity of this second letter to them, right? You can see the utmost importance that he would want to authenticate this second letter to them. So with all of that in mind, that's why Paul insisted on writing the very end of this second letter in his own handwriting, no matter how bad it was due to his failing eyesight and plainly pointing that fact out to the Thessalonians. You got a letter from me, supposedly from me, before, and that wasn't actually from me. So I'm authenticating this second letter to you by writing it in my own handwriting with those large letters so you can know that it's from me. So we started out with the conclusion, verses 17 through 18 of our passage. Now let's go back to verse 16 with the completion Read, uh, so verse 16, in 2 Thessalonians 3, we read, Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. Remember everything that this relatively baby church has gone through. Throughout our study, we explored the circumstances revolving around Paul's visit to Thessalonica around the year 50 AD, while on his second missionary journey. We talked about that it was with fresh scars from his and Silas's beating beating and imprisonment in Philippi that they, along with Timothy, had first walked into Thessalonica. So we see here a map of the area here. Here's Philippi. It's very close to Thessalonica, which is right over here, the port city of Thessalonica. We talked about how Paul wanted nothing from those he would soon start sharing the gospel with. So soon after his entrance into Thessalonica, he used his trade experience with leather and canvas working to most likely find the local Thessalonian leather working guild and work long hours hunched over a workbench repairing and making everything from tents to canvas awnings, ship sails, and gloves. He probably went and worked at the trade guild in the early morning hours and went out and shared the gospel and taught God's word to those he led to Jesus during the day and early uh, evening hours and then went back to the guild and worked long into the night. Paul worked very hard while he was in Thessalonica and he did this Not only to put as much distance as possible in between himself and other traveling philosophers who just wanted handouts and remove any obstacle to anyone listening to his message, but he did this to give the Thessalonians an example of what hard work looks like. Hard work in this earthly life and hard work for the kingdom of God. And he talked about all that in the previous verses of chapter 3. We talked about how when Paul, Silas, and Timothy entered into Thessalonica, they also found the local synagogue and pointed out to the Jewish members how Jesus was the Messiah. You can read all about this event in Acts 17. Paul and his missionary companions see great success for the kingdom of God, leading many people in Thessalonica to faith in Jesus. And you'd think that would be great, right? But here was the problem. A lot of these new... Christians were prominent members of the synagogue and of the city of Thessalonica. The other Jewish members of the synagogue having these more prominent members defecting to this new movement that worshipped a crucified guy as the Messiah were consumed by ugly jealousy. They formed a plan to get back at Paul and his companions for what they did. Thessalonica itself enjoyed special status within the Roman Empire for its loyalty to a Roman emperor in his wars. As such, no Roman troops were stationed in Thessalonica, and the city had the position of ruling itself with its own city council. That was all well and good for Thessalonica, but the city council's biggest fear and nightmare would then be what? Any whiff of any social unrest, right? what that would be interpreted by Rome as would be an inability to rule over themselves and their special status would then be revoked from them by Rome. So the Jewish members of the synagogue got together. They got an idea and they got together and they persuaded a few troublemakers from the marketplace to incite a riot. And when the concerned city council got involved, Blame it on none other than Paul and his new Christians. That's exactly what happened. But instead of the rioters being able to get their hands on their prime targets, namely Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they had to settle on hauling other members of the Thessalonian church before the city council. And only after posting bail, the city council finally released those members of the church. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, however, were sent away by the Thessalonian believers to the neighboring town of Berea over here. And that's a whole other story. And the three of them fled for their lives. Even though Paul had established elders in Thessalonica to lead the church through this tempest of persecution, Paul himself wasn't there. He had gotten the chance to explain some end times theology to the Thessalonian church, but not fully, before he had to escape. That incomplete and therefore inaccurate understanding of end times theology, along with the intense persecution we just saw a taste of from Acts 17, was threatening to destroy the whole church. Paul was so concerned for the state and well-being of the church, we find out from 1 Thessalonians that he sent Timothy back up to check up on them. When Timothy found what Timothy found was not only was the church surviving, it was thriving by the grace and power of God. However, there were those end times theological misunderstandings that continued to threaten to destroy the church in a couple of different ways. And on top of that, the constant reality of persecution continued to loom over the believers. In short, the Thessalonians were always dealing with hope you can see that. They are always dealing with instability and fear. Did you, do you see that? They were always dealing with instability and fear. I'm getting a bunch of blank stares at me. You can see that, right? I mean, it gets some life, some nodding of heads. All right. In view of everything we know that the Thessalonian church had to deal with, look back at verse 16. Paul's final prayer for them is perfect. It's exactly what they needed to hear as Paul closed out his letter to them. The God they served was not a God of chaos, confusion, instability, or crippling fear. He was the God of faithfulness, stability, steadfastness, courage, and especially as it pertained to the Thessalonians, peace. When Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians, he also mentioned peace, but in what context? Does anybody remember? Paul listed peace as a fruit of the Spirit, right, in his letter to the Galatians. In fact, in Galatians 5.22-23, in the list of fruits of the Spirit, the word for peace is the same exact word used here in 2 Thessalonians 3.16, It's a word that's meant to describe a wholeness, a completeness, a completion, where one is all put together. What does that have to do with a biblical understanding of peace? We know that it's a fruit of the Spirit, which means what? That we can't manufacture it ourselves, right? Or find it somewhere else in this world. Does it mean that if we just somehow reach far down deep within us, we can find it somewhere and just pull it out? Is that what that means? No. Not at all. What does it mean? It means that it must be given to us. That's what it means. It must be grown inside of us from a source originating outside of us. Real, true, lasting peace can only be given to us by the Lord, the God of peace, as Paul says exactly here in verse 16. That's how Paul can even say what he says in verse 16. That the Thessalonians would be given peace in every circumstance. That means, yes, their external circumstances, the situations they were going through, especially in persecution, but the word also means in every way of life, in all of who you are. The peace that God could and would give to them was to be seen in every way of their lives and how they interacted with each other as brothers and sisters in the faith, and how they interacted with the secular world around them, and how they dealt with and processed through the persecution they experienced on a daily basis, and how they viewed God, and how their faith dictated the way that they lived. The peace of God was to permeate every single area Of their lives. It was possible. Not only was it possible. It was expected. For their lives. In that way. Not only did the Thessalonians have all of eternity. To look forward to with Jesus. But they could rest assured. Be be rest assured. That no matter what they went through. And no matter how they emotionally felt about it. That they could experience a taste of heaven. And the eternally reaching peace. That God would give to them. Those were words of gold to a beleaguered and beaten down church. Only the power of the peace of God could carry them through the rest of their earthly lives and carry them into eternity. Since we are part of the same family of believers, we get to hold on to that same truth ourselves no matter what situations we're going through, no matter how physically, emotionally, mentally, psychologically, or spiritually painful they are, and no matter what emotions we go through in connection with them, God's peace is a constant that will never change. It will always be our anchor. That's why God's peace must originate from God and be given to us. It must be outside of our circumstances in order for us to cling to it as an unmoving rock in the middle of a tempestuous sea. At the same time, it's as easily accessible as the Holy Spirit who indwells each of us as believers in Jesus because after all, it's a fruit of the Spirit, right? But what's one of the biggest temptations the enemy of our souls throws at us time after time? That's always right in our face and oftentimes blocks out the truth. It's so in our face that we can't see around it and it blocks out the truth. Time and time again, the enemy of our souls throws at us to look for that peace elsewhere. And in fact, everywhere else, but going to God for it. But here's the thing. We were created in the image of God. It's a foundational truth that we find in the very first book of the Bible. That God created each and every human in the image of God. That simple truth gives us the basis, the foundation for everything in our lives. From from the very basics of life, such as when life begins, God's design and standard for marriage, which we talked about a few weeks ago, and why His righteous standards are what they are, All of that to our relationship, connection, and representation of God. Here's what I mean. God created every human being to be incomplete. Did you know that? You cannot find yourself enough to complete yourself. It's impossible. Stop doing it. God created each and every human being to be incomplete. Each of us is born missing something. When God originally created the first man and first woman, he had an unbroken connection with them. They experienced the height of connection and relationship with the creator of the universe, and that included God's never-ending peace. When they chose to believe that that wasn't good enough for them, that connection was severed. Never again would anyone be able to experience the utmost blessing of God's peace in their heart until the perfect time in history when God himself, the second person of the Trinity, put on human flesh and came to earth as Jesus. When Jesus died and rose again and poured out his Holy Spirit on those who put their faith and trust in him as the sacrifice on their behalf, he reestablished that connection with Almighty God. We won't fully experience it until we're fully reunited with Jesus upon death or the rapture. But we can still experience it in our earthly lives now. Don't disregard that. Don't let the enemy make you forget that. Distract you from that. Don't throw that away by trying to chase after what you think might give you peace in this world. Instead, focus all of your energies and attentions on this fully embrace and live out what God is extending to you through faith in Jesus this gift of peace in your heart and peace in your mind we can have this peace because it's based on trust in God's sovereignty over everything that happens in this life see it's not a foundationless peace it's not oh I'll well, just think positive thoughts. We can have this peace because it's based on something. We can have this peace because it's founded surely 100% on something, and that is this, God's sovereignty over everything that happens in our lives, no matter what it is. Nothing takes God by surprise, and He always has a reason for everything that happens to us At the very least, to reveal more of who he is to us and to grow us to deeper and deeper levels of faith in him. To stretch us. To grow us. Those of you who lift weights, are your muscles going to grow unless you work out the ones that you have or maybe that you don't have right now? No, they don't grow until you rip those muscle fibers apart and they have a chance to regrow themselves together. So even in the most trying circumstances that we go through in this life, the most painful, gut-wrenching experiences that we go through in this life, no matter how much our heart is torn apart by these experiences, at the very least, the reason for that is so God can grow things stronger together. In that way, through these trials, we are made complete which again is the definition of the word used for peace here. The Apostle James puts it this way, For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. That's just what happens. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be complete and perfect Leading nothing, needing nothing. Now that's not saying that we'll ever be perfect this side of heaven. But what that is saying is that's what God is growing us towards. So truly, in every circumstance and in every way of life, all of who we are, we can be given peace by God. We just have to seek it nowhere else than from the very hand of God. And when we seek it, Guess what? God promises to give it to us. That promise and that truth frees us from truly not having to be fearful or anxious about anything. That's what God offers to us. One of the things He offers to us through faith in His Son. Surrender every area of your life to the Holy Spirit's transformation and he will start growing God's peace in every area of your life. I want to close with Paul's words to the Philippian church which serve as a good closing to Paul's second letter to the Thessalonian church and to God's words for us today. You've heard these words no doubt before but it's the perfect closing. Don't worry about anything. How can He say that? Instead, pray about everything. Why? Because God is sovereign over everything. Tell God what you need. It's okay to do that. In fact, do it. And thank Him for all that He has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. You can't even understand it. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words of promise, these words of peace that you give to us. We thank you that if we believe and accept Jesus' gift of salvation for us, won for us on the cross and proven to us by his resurrection, that we can have this gift of peace. Lord, I pray that if we have done that, if we have committed our lives to you through Jesus Christ, that we would fully embrace it for everything that it is. That we would not go looking for it anywhere else, but from the very hand of you. Lord, I pray that we, as we seek you, as we seek to live our lives fully for you in every area of our lives, that we would be rest assured that you will give us your peace in every circumstance and in every experience. We thank you for creating us. We thank you for being sovereign over our lives. We thank you for redeeming us. And we thank you for restoring us to yourself and fully restoring us to yourself one day. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name.